Well, good morning again. I'm excited to have you all worshiping with us here at the church. We are in our study on the book of Hebrews, and uh, we are rounding out the last part of chapter 10. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn there. But also, in a moment, the scriptures will be up on the screen. Um, We've been going through this book. I'll lay a little bit of context again as to where we are and why we are here. The whole purpose of the writing of the book of Hebrews is this, that Christ has come, he's lived, he's died upon the cross, risen from the grave, and has now ascended into heaven, establishing the new covenant. People have witnessed this, they have seen it, and many are coming to Jesus. However, what is happening as people are coming to Jesus simultaneously, the Old Testament system and the temple is still existing. And as they are following Christ, they are thinking that when I follow Jesus, life is going to be a bunch of roses. And fortunately or unfortunately, what they are discovering is that their very faith in Christ has become hard or difficult or challenging, and they are wrought with persecution. And so individuals are starting to say, this is too hard. This isn't what I signed up for. I'm looking over at the old way, and it seems to be better. Maybe I will go back to that and abandon what has been offered to me in Christ. And so the whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is the author comes forward and he says, I'm going to lay out a logical but systematic argument for you to demonstrate to you why Jesus is the best of the best, or you've heard me say the goat, the greatest of all time. And so for the first several chapters, the author goes through and does a comparison. And he says, Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrifice. He's better than the priestly order. We've discovered he is the king and the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so systematically, the author has given essentially all of the evidence to demonstrate indeed why would you ever leave Jesus after what you know and have experienced and have been given in Christ. And so we are now rounding this chapter and the author is issuing a warning And he is saying, I have shown, I have said, I have given, I have presented. But you need to know what it is if you throw Jesus away. This morning, we're going to ask this question and we're going to simply begin to answer it. Individuals might come forward and they say, my faith in Christ, and I'm putting that in quotes and we'll see this in a moment. My faith in Christ doesn't work Should I just throw it away? And interestingly enough, what we're going to discover is the author says, absolutely not. But to give you some context, to give you some ideas of what's going on, one of the things that I want to encourage you in is this. Has anybody noticed in our world that products that we receive are getting cheaper and cheaper? And what we do when they don't work is rather than moving forward to fix them, we just throw them away? Isn't that our norm? Well, interestingly enough, I want to share this with you. Americans throw out 4.9 pounds of trash per person every day. That's nearly 1,800 pounds of materials 
per American every year. The majority of waste, 62%, is discarded by homes and businesses in the U.S., is ultimately dumped into landfills or burned in incinerators. So that's just a statistic to give a little bit of context and know we're not here to preach a message on environmental care. But one of the things that I want to ask you is simply this. What would happen if someone came and gave a gift to you and that gift was something that was so precious to them and they said, here it is, it is yours, it is what I have done for you entirely. Take it and I don't expect anything back from you. And what you do is you fully look that gift in the face and you say, thank you, I don't want it, and you throw it in the trash. That's what we're talking about today. And one of the things that we need to recognize and realize is that the American church, in many aspects, has started to cheapen the gift of Jesus. They've started to say, you know, it's too much to talk to people about the fact that they are dead in their sins and they need a savior. So we're going to cheapen the material. We're going to lessen the impact. We're going to try to create a new gift that we think will be promoted better. And we're going to say, you know what? Jesus exists to give you a better life. The purpose of Jesus is to take an already good person and make them better. And one of the things that I will tell you is this. If the purpose of Jesus is to take a good person and make them better, why would a God give his one and only son to die on a cross on our behalf? It's absolutely insane. But yet, if the only means for us to be right standing before a holy and loving God is through the loving gift of his one and only son who didn't have to do this but willingly subjected himself to become human and be fully God in order that we who are in desperate need of a savior could be saved eternally and holy and be declared righteous before God. That's what we're talking about today. And what's happening in the story of the book of Hebrews is this. The people have been seeing and they know. They are fully aware of the Old Testament system. They are fully aware of what was. And they are also fully aware of what is. And they're sitting there and they're saying, it's too hard. It's not working. I don't want it. Thank you, but no thank you. And they're turning away. And the author is saying, I implore you to be very careful with what you have been given. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want to take a moment. We're going to turn to Hebrews 10. And we're going to be looking at verse 26. Now just to help you lay some context here, we're going to read a couple of verses and what I'm going to tell you is that those verses are not being written to individuals who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ genuinely. This isn't saying, hey, if you are a follower of Jesus and you have truly given your heart to him and you continue to sin, you're in trouble. We know that. We know that we have been declared righteous, that we have the Holy Spirit within us. But we also know, if we're honest with ourselves, that none of us are perfect. And we do continue to sin at times. 
yet God forgives us. So I want to be very clear before we dive into this. I don't want anybody this morning thinking, oh my gosh, I've given truly my heart to Jesus Christ, and he is my Lord and Savior, but I struggle with sin. Therefore, I must be this person. What's being spoken about here, what's being addressed in this, is individuals who are on the fringe. They want the benefit. They want to look good on the outside. They want, essentially, to be included, but they have not given their heart to Jesus Christ. And lovingly, what I want to ask you this morning is to look deep within your heart and deep within your soul. Are you merely a poser? Are you merely looking good on the outside, but you have not embraced the gift on the end? And lovingly, what I'm going to tell you, if that is where you are, you are in danger of throwing your Savior away because you indeed have not been saved. Let's take a look. We're in verse 26, and the warning is this. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received, now notice this, not the gift, okay, the knowledge, I know, it's been presented to me. I'm fully aware of what has been given. The knowledge of Jesus. The knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sins is left. And basically, if we take that back to context, it's saying if we are looking and we know that through the Old Testament, time and time again, the sacrifice for sins was futile. It was an effort in futility as the author has established They've come once a year, they do the atonement for the sacrifice, and what they've discovered is it's the only ability to cleanse them on the outside. It's not working on the in. If that's the case, and Jesus has come and lived and died and risen from the grave and established the new covenant in his blood by dying for you so that you might be wholly saved through his mercy and grace, and you're saying, I've got it, I've known it, I have understand it, it's been clear, but I don't want it then basically what the author is saying is, it's over. There's no sacrifice left. There's, there's no other place to go. There's not another God. There's not another system. There's not another addition. It is Christ and Christ alone. And you know because you have seen, you have watched the Old Testament, you've seen the Old Testament sacrifices. You know that they're futile. And you have seen or you have heard about the resurrection of Jesus. You know when he died that there was an earthquake. And that the temple, the veil in the temple was torn in two. You know this. And yet you're choosing to reject it. That's what's being spoken about here. And basically what the author is saying, if you know this and you choose, then I'm going to tell you there's no other place to go. Verse 27, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's speaking back to the Old Testament. He's looking back to Old Testament law. And what we discover essentially in that distribution is this, that on the testimony of two or three witnesses, 
There were certain aspects where there were sins that were forgivable. But there are also very clear sins that are unforgivable. And those sins, if committed in the Old Testament, were committed and verified by two or three witnesses. The punishment was death. Don't miss this. That's what's being spoken about here. If you commit certain sins within the Old Testament and it's verified by two or three witnesses, we're to tell you that the punishment is death. So notice the argument. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest, the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. The author is essentially coming to the culmination of his entire point of the argument that he's been establishing in the first 10 chapters. And this is the climax. Basically, he's saying, look, I have done all I can to demonstrate to you the superiority of Jesus. The fact that indeed, that God loves you, but God is also a holy and just God. God is holy and can have no part of sin. And whether we like it or not, we, including myself, are sinners in need of a Savior, and our destiny apart from God through Jesus Christ is death. Hence the word Savior. I've said before, if we do not fully understand the depravity of our sin, we will never fully embrace the salvation we have received through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To make it clear, Jesus did not die to make good people better. He died to make dead people alive. And so in this passage, the author is wrapping this up and he's making one 
last warning saying, please understand and please look that after all you have seen, after all Christ has done, if you are on this sort of fence, for lack of a better word, if you're looking good on the outside, but you have not embraced the Savior on the in, if essentially religion is ritual and doing, and it is not relationship, I'm here to tell you that you must embrace the Savior. And in knowing that the Savior has come, if you look and you say, I don't want that anymore, or excuse me, not anymore, I don't want that at all, you are taking the gift and you are throwing it away. You have not received the gift you are throwing it out. Essentially, let me give this to you, it's as if I'm going forward to my wife, and before I am married, I am saying, I want you to be mine, will you marry me? And she says, no chance in bleep, because I know who you are, okay? It's not gonna happen, she throws the gift away, we're not gonna get married. Brothers and sisters, what's happening is Christ is coming to you and he's saying, I love you and I want you to be my bride. Will you accept the gift that I am giving? And lovingly, I ask you this, will you or will you not? Knowing what we have discovered in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is the best of the best. He is the greatest of all times. And as it's been established here, there is no other means for salvation. There's no other door, no other opportunity, no other way. Will you choose him? The first thing I want to show you, particularly in this, in verses 26 through 27, is the warning. And this morning I get up and I'm like, Lord, help me in this. Like, come to Jesus, come to church, right? And I get to preach on a warning passage. But this is scripture. This is the word of God. This is what God has done. And so I pray that your hearts and your minds would be attentive to what's being said by this author And the first thing I want you to see, particularly as the author is laying out this, if we leave Jesus, we leave mercy and grace and go back to a system that only brings judgment. Now, please, I want to qualify this. This does not mean that you have given your heart to Jesus Christ, that you are genuinely saved. This is the presentation of Christ. This is, there are two options Christ has come, he has lived, he has died. He has established the new covenant, and yet over here, during the writing of this time, the temple continues. The Old Testament is still visually going on, but theologically it is no longer valid. And basically what the author is doing is he's saying, look, I've presented all of this to you. I've made it clear. I've demonstrated how, yes, the Old Testament was ordained by God, but I've clearly shown you that all it was doing was demonstrating our inability to come to God in holiness. And yet what I've shown you is the superior one, the goat, the greatest of all time, has died for you and risen from the grave, triumphed over sin and death, is now seated at the right hand of the Father and says, come. 
Come to me, all of you who are heavily, uh, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is so much more to that passage than just resting in peace. It is resting in the wrestling of God and the enmity that we have before him. Come, I offer this to you. Will you be mine? If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Please don't miss this. This is, you know who Jesus is. You've been presented with the gospel. It's clear to you the path of salvation. And you look at that and you say, nah, I'm going to just kind of go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to think that maybe something else is going to come out. I'm going to tell you right now, there is no Jesus 2.0. There is no new gospel. There is no new way. There is only one. And that is our Savior Jesus Christ. The ESV Study Bible kind of says this to reiterate this point. The author refers especially to people within the Christian community. Now, now, please recognize this. They're within the Christian community, right? But they're not followers of Jesus. They've heard this truth. It's been made clearly evident to them that the gospel of Christ is that Christ has died on a cross to forgive you of your sins and you are a sinner in need of a savior and you need to put your arms around him. Let me make it clear. You are drowning in a sea of sin and there are no other means and the only life preserver that has been thrown to you is Jesus. Will you take it or will you swim away? The fact that they go on sinning deliberately, thank you, but no, I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to figure it out on my own way. I don't want to humble myself before God. Indicates this. Even after receiving knowledge of the truth, indicates that the people in view are not and never were genuine believers. That is, there are people who have never genuinely embraced the gospel in a way that has resulted in a life of faith, obedience, and bearing fruit. Now, please hear me. I am not legalistically saying that you all have to be me. I am not saying that you have to be perfect. But what I am saying is this. Yes, salvation is key, but it goes so far beyond, are you saved? I've said it before. When people come to me and say, how do I know I'm saved? My first question is not, have you prayed the prayer? Although that's important. The manner of how you know you're saved is, is your life different? Is the trajectory of your life different? Are you no longer Lord of your life, but Christ is Lord of your life? Are you following him? Are you being obedient to him? Are you desiring more of him? Is that evidenced by your faith? Is that evidenced by your fruit? Or are you simply coming on the outside, but not giving your heart on the in? That's what's being talked about here.
And the answer to that question is this, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire will consume the enemies of God. The author continues on in verses 28 through 31, and the main point of this is after having established, if we leave Jesus, meaning if we leave the, the gift, if we say, I get it, I understand it, I'm fully aware of what the gift is, but I don't want it. We go back to a system that only brings judgment. That's it. The only means of the Old Testament was to bring judgment, to make people aware of their sin. And lovely what I'm going to tell you as we continue on, and the author begins to describe as this, it is a terrible thing to be presented with the grace of Christ and choose to reject it. I, I wish I could smile on this. I wish that I could be like, it's a terrible thing to, you know, well, rainbows and butterflies. But lovingly, before my Savior, of which I am accountable, I cannot stand before you today and not say this. It is a terrible thing to be presented with the grace of Christ and choose to reject it. Verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The author is moving, as he has done before, in this how much more argument. He said, hey, you know what? It's bad enough. It's bad enough in the Old Testament to do something that is essentially worthy of death and die physically. That's not a, not a fun thing. It's not fun to be stoned to death. But then he implores the greater argument and he says this. Now, just take a minute. Anyone who was there, who was listening to this, would be fully aware of the Old Testament and they would be fully aware of what the author is referring to. They would say, yeah, I recognize that if I did X sin that I could be stoned. They would know this. And then all of a sudden, we go to this. How much more? How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has, and watch this, trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace. Let me be clear. Many times people come forward and they say, how can a loving God send people to hell? And what I'm going to tell you is this. The loving God does not send you to hell. The loving God has given you our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as a perfect offering to you who has interjected for your sin and hung on a cross on your behalf, mine included. Okay, please hear me. I'm not standing up here saying, this applies to you. doesn't apply to me because I'm a pastor. For all of you, and what we've discovered in this is through the Old Testament, all of these repetitive sacrifices could not save anyone. And yet, Christ has come as the perfect sacrifice, being fully God and fully man, and hung on the cross and died upon it to forgive you of your sin. Not only have you been forgiven of your sin, should you choose to accept this gift, but there is no need for any repetition in it. 
You don't need to come to Jesus and have your sins forgiven and then say, well, you got about 10 of them done, but now you need to do it on your own to get the remainder over. It is whole, it is complete, it is yours. You don't need to buy it. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to educate yourself to it. You don't need to come to church enough to get it. Although that's not a bad thing. It is yours. It is a gift. And when you come to Christ through mercy and grace, you are a son or a daughter of the living king. Not only are you saved, not only are you no longer destined for an eternity apart from him, you are included in the kingdom with full rights and privileges. And the father comes before this and he says, I've given you my son. I've given you my one and only son who was willing to die on the cross on your behalf. Even though you said crucify him. Even though you spat upon him. Even though you rejected him when he was here. He has established this and the offer still stands today. Will you choose that gift? And you say, nah, I'm good. I don't need Savior. I've got it all figured out. There's another way. Or better yet, nah, not today. I'm too involved in my own life, in my own way, and what I want to do, how I want to go. Maybe I'll think about Jesus in the future, but not now. And lovingly, what I'm going to tell you is this. The reason that God rejects that individual when they die is because God has said, I have given you all the means. I have given you all I can to come to me freely, to accept my gift of grace. And you've known that you are under judgment, and you've chosen to reject me. There is no more I can do. A loving God does not send people to hell. A loving God has given his one and only son who loves you so much that he went to the cross. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. I love that verse, but I hate how it's being used. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son for whoever shall believe in him shall not, it's right there, perish, but have eternal life. Will you take that gift? One of the things, just to kind of prove this point is this. In the ESV study Bible, we read these words. The description that follows is a person who has deliberately, consciously, and persistently deserted the living God. Thank you, but no thank you. I'm aware of salvation. I know that Jesus is there. I understand what the gospel is, but I don't want it. Renouncing Christ in the community of faith. It is a description of outright apostasy. Involving a person who has done three specific things. One, spurn the Son of God. I don't want Jesus. I, I, I know it. I've heard it. 
I understand it. Don't want him. Okay? Interestingly enough, what? It took two to three witnesses to send someone in the Old Testament. Right? Watch what here. God doesn't just say you spurn the Son of God, you're out. He comes again. And you've profaned the blood of the covenant. When we commune, we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ. When we look back to the Old Testament and we recognize in the Old Testament sacrifice, it was the blood of goats that the priests would slaughter and then place over essentially the altar in a manner of sacrifice. Knowing wholly that all of that was mere pomp and circumstance, it did not do anything to remove the sins that were there, that were present. And yet Christ has come and sacrificed himself with his blood and, P.S. by the way, included you because we know before that those that were not of the people of God or common today, if you are not Jewish, we were known as the Gentiles. We are known as the Gentiles. And we are excluded, per se, from entering in to the temple, but more importantly, from the holy place and the holy of holies. Only one could do so once a year. And when Christ died, why we know that there was an earthquake and the veil was torn was there was the dispersion of grace. You no longer have to go through a priest to come to me even though I am with you. You are no longer excluded and you now can draw near to me because of my grace. Not only can you draw near to me, but you are wholly mine should you choose to accept the gift of mercy and grace that I am offering to you today. And you say, no, I don't want that, son. No, your blood is not good enough. And three, you outrage the spirit of grace. What more can I do, says God? I'm not telling you you need to earn. I'm not telling you you need to buy. I'm not telling you you need to be a good person. I'm telling you I've done it all for you. I've given you everything. And should you choose to just freely unwrap that gift, it is yours and you are mine. And you say, I don't want Jesus, I don't want his blood, and I certainly don't want his grace. What more can I do, says God. Such rejection of the knowledge of the truth, willful disobedience is tantamount to trampling upon God's Son, reckoning His blood to be defiled. It's essentially going, I don't believe in it. And insulting the Spirit who has offered such grace and because of that, the one who does this deserves eternal judgment. Now, you probably notice that I'm a little heated. You probably notice that this passage is a little challenging. And interestingly enough, we move forward and we read this. 
Verse uh, 28, anyone who has rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Okay, so there's number one. Okay. Has treated an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the spirit of grace. And then we go on and we hear, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Interestingly enough, that's coming and being quoted out of Deuteronomy 32, 35. And then the author includes, and again, the Lord will judge his people. And that comes out of Deuteronomy 32, 36. And also is quoted in Psalm 135, 14. And then interestingly enough, verse 31, it should sound familiar to anyone who is a studier of theology. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. A passage that was made famous by Jonathan Edwards in sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is the passage that Jonathan Edwards preached. And as he preached about the grace and the mercy of God and the love of Jesus Christ, and as he told them about how much God had done for them, he said, friends, God is a loving and merciful God. But his anger comes when you spit in the face of the gift that has been given. This is the passage that makes Jonathan Edwards famous. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, interesting enough, uh, I love the tech team and thank you for your provision. Um, I got I to gotta tell you this. This is just, this is, I think, God's providence. So I'm sitting here, I'm doing my thing, I've wrapped up my sermon, and I'm sitting there and I'm just going, God, how do we look and help people see, don't put yourself in the hand of God because what's being described here is this. This is essentially the ultimate. This is nowhere, nowhere else to go, okay? You've, you've, you've done your thing, you've lived your life. There's no other opportunity. There's no other exit. There's no other means. And what you are doing is you are sitting there going before God and just saying, I'm in your hands, God. I didn't know you, but I'm in your hands. Do with me what you will. And interestingly enough, I get into my car, I turn on my playlist, and in a moment, the following song comes. And the chorus is this. Where to now, St. Peter? If it's true, I'm in your hands. I may not be a Christian, but I've done all one man can. I understand I'm on the road where all that was is gone. So where to now, St. Peter? Show me which road I'm on. Let's listen. You don't want to play? Okay, we'll see if we can get it. 
Again, give them, give them grace. I came to them this morning, and I'm like, guys, like, I hate to tell you this, but this happened. I got to... Let's see if we can get it. Yeah. I can. Okay. I can. Where to? Now, St. Peter, show me where. If it's true, I'm in your hands. I may not be a Christian, but I've done all I can. Please get this video before everybody leaves. I'm feeling really embarrassed. Elton John is better than me. Okay, here we go.
What road are you on? I love Elton John. Amazing singer. But such a deep theological question. One of the things that I'm going to tell you this morning is simply this, that if you are standing before St. Peter and you recognize the truth of the gospel and you know about the offer of mercy and grace, but yet you've chosen to to reject it, and you go before St. Peter and you say, hey, St. Peter, didn't want to follow Jesus. Show me which road I'm on. What I will tell you is this. St. Peter will say you have bigger things to answer for because you have chosen the road that you are on. I have offered you my mercy and grace. I have offered you my son. I have offered you his blood. I've offered you his grace. And you've chosen to reject that. It is too late. So the answer to this question, as beautiful as this song is, and as much as I love Elton John, is this. If anyone stands before, Jesus, uh, before St. Peter and says, I may not be a Christian, but show me which road I'm on, that road will be away from me. I never knew you. You've chosen to reject my son. Now, one of the things that I continue on is we look and we say, well, where do we go? What do we do? Well, the offering of grace is here. We continue on in these verses, and the whole point of this is to encourage those who are genuinely in Christ to say, keep moving forward. Keep being boldened in the grace of Jesus. And so essentially in verse 32, he goes back and he says, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering? Hence the whole purpose behind the writing of this book. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult, persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. And continues on and he says, you sympathize with those who were in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your uh, property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So what the author essentially is saying here is, is, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we endure trials, rejection, and even persecution for our faith, we can take heart in Christ. Has anybody ever endured a trial? having come to Jesus? Has anybody endured a rejection after having come to Christ? Is anybody being persecuted for their faith? Maybe because people know that you believe in Jesus, people are treating you differently. What the author is doing is he is saying, press on, brothers and sisters in Christ. Press on in the faith that you have received. I promise you that there will come a day when I will come again and receive you into my loving embrace. And then the author turns and he finally says in this last sort of expression, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Doesn't feel like it now, God. I'm following you and everything's going haywire. Continue on and you will be richly rewarded. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you go to breathe your last breath, the son of the living king will reach his hand and say, come my son, come my daughter, and be mine and eat at my banquet forever. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. 
For in just a very little while, oh, it seems forever, God. He who is coming will come and not delay. But by my righteous one, I will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Continue in your faith. The point of these last couple of verses is this. When we're going under trials and rejection and persecution, we can take faith and our heart in Christ. And when we do, we are encouraged. We are encouraged to not throw away our faith, but to continue to persevere in it. 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who, and don't miss this, believe and are saved. It's interesting because the author writes this. The author gets it out to the people. The people see what's going on. The people are being persecuted. They're coming to Christ, or maybe they're sort of around the fringes of Christ, but they're looking over at a temple that currently exists. Why do I need to do this? Things haven't changed. Why do I need to embrace God? Why do I need his mercy and grace? I'm fine, I'm okay. And interestingly enough, people kind of say, I got time. I don't need anything. Sound familiar? You know what's interesting about this fact? This is true historical fact. The writer of Hebrews writes this book in AD 60 or AD 65. That's proven fact. They're looking at the temple and they're thinking, nothing's changed. Nothing's happened. What do you mean? Five or at most 10 years later, AD 70, historically, what happens to the temple of where they're placing their faith and trust in? Gone. Friends here today, remember that the book of Hebrews is written around 60 to 65 AD. Now, theologically, the work of Christ to establish the new covenant has been completed. However, at that time, the temple, and this is where the Old Testament sacrifice were still continuing, still exists. However, in just a few short years, 70 AD, the temple will be destroyed. The nation of Israel will no longer exist, and its people will be dispersed across foreign lands. Fast forward to today. No. Oh, I see that the offer of salvation is here, but it's not going to happen. Jesus isn't going to come back. He's not going to come and reign and establish a new kingdom. Now, I'm not God. I don't know the time. But I wonder if perhaps we're at AD 60 or 65 and the temple will be destroyed in AD 70. Five years. Ten years max. All that people had known and believed in gone. And the one that remains is the one who is king. The best of the best, the greatest of all time, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
who offers you the gift of mercy and grace when you come to him by admitting your sins and need for a savior. My faith in Christ doesn't work right now. This Christian thing isn't right. Should I just throw it all away? And what I want to encourage you in is this. Simply, we see the author state these very important facts. If we leave Jesus, we leave mercy and grace and go back to a system that only brings judgment. It is a terrible thing to be presented with the grace of Christ and choose to reject it. Brothers and sisters, for those of us that are enduring trials, may we be encouraged that when we endure these trials, rejection and even persecution for our faith, we can take heart in Christ. And may I encourage you that when we do, we are encouraged not to throw our faith, but to continue and persevere in it. The underlying theme that we're going through is this. When undergoing trials, rejection, or even persecution, don't throw away your faith. Rather, rest in the grace that is given to you in Christ and persevere in your faith. I leave you with two questions today, and we're going to take some time to contemplate. For those of you that know Christ, but maybe you're weary, how might you persevere in your faith? Lovingly, I come before you and I ask for those of you that may not know Christ, what road are you on? And lovingly, I implore you not to wait before you stand before St. Peter and ask him, show me which road I am on. You have the opportunity before you to say, I know which road I'm on now, and that road is apart from you. But I can go on the road assuredly with you because of what Christ has done for me. Because of his blood, because of his sacrifice, because he is king. Let's take some time. Let's pray. And then we'll stand and we'll sing our closing hymn.